Welcome back. Uh, tonight, we're looking at chapter three of R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. Um, this is a chapter with the title, The Fearsome Mystery or Fearful Mystery. Um, if you read the chapter, which is which can be helpful uh, before we uh, we study it together, uh, you may have noticed that R.C. wanders a bit tonight. He wanders a bit in this chapter, and I think that's just a habit that theologians somehow pick up along the way. In fact, some of you may know a pastor who wanders from time to time while he's talking about things. Uh, but Silas isn't on tonight, so don't tell him I said that. Um, I think our best course is actually going to be just to follow R.C. as he wanders, uh, so we can walk through the chapter together. Uh, but I'm going to point out a few things along the way that are potentially at least a little bit confusing in the way he's presenting things uh, to make sure that we're getting clarity about the biblical doctrine of holiness and not simply hearing a bunch of disparate ideas that we're kind of fuzzily keeping together. I think that clarity will be helpful for us. So my plan is that we're going to discuss, uh, time willing, uh, four main things. First, R.C.'s definition of holiness. Um, second, discuss transcendence and its relationship to holiness. Third, we will talk about the simplicity of God. Um, that actually is not something he directly talks about, but I think it will help clear up one of the uh, paragraphs um, that I think is potentially confusing. And fourth, if we have time, I want to say a little bit about uh, Rudolf Otto's uh, book that R.C. devotes about two chapters to talking about. Um, I think that could be helpful methodologically. It's not actually that important in terms of understanding holiness. So that's where I'm hoping to go this evening. Uh, but of course, I'm happy to discuss anything you want to raise that's even tangentially related to the chapter, because I am prone to wander even more than R.C. is. Uh, before we do that, though, let's uh, go before the throne of grace and ask the Lord to bless our time together as we study uh, this important doctrine. Let us pray. Father, we are in awe of you. We contemplate your greatness, and our minds just run to the utter limits of our ability, and yet you are infinitely beyond that. And so we confess as we consider this doctrine of your holiness um, that we're grappling a bit on the edges. We, we know that we have not fully understood who you are in all things, but we are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and in Jesus Christ. And so we ask this evening as we discuss this chapter that we would come to a clearer understanding of who you are, not simply that we would have intellectual knowledge in our heads, but that this would lead us to worship you more purely and to walk in your ways more fully in the days ahead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it took to the third chapter, but R.C. finally got to giving us a definition of holiness. And he kind of hems and haws a bit in the beginning of the chapter about how difficult it is to define the doctrine of holiness. And I was a little bit surprised. I haven't read this book in about 25 years. Um, I was a little surprised to realize he's hemming and hawing in that way, because the definition he gives is a very, very common definition uh, among theologians. You'll, you'll come across this definition almost all the time. He's not really stretching for something here, um, but it's important for us to see where he's coming from and, and what he's trying to get us to understand. 
Um, I, I, I suspect that uh, part of the reason why he hems and haws a bit is perhaps, maybe I'm speculating here, perhaps he realizes this definition doesn't quite work the way he wants it to. It doesn't satisfy the justice of all the biblical uh, data, and maybe that's part of the tension, or perhaps it's simply that R.C. recognizes, as hopefully we all do, uh, then when we're talking about God, we are coming to a bit of a mystery because God is so much beyond us. He's infinite. We're finite. We can know him truly, but we will not know him exhaustively. Um, on the bottom of page 35, um, Dr. Sproul says it's been customary to define holy as purity, free from every stain, whole, perfect, and immaculate in every detail. Uh, I just want to make a distinction here. I think that's a common way of talking about it in terms of popularly. If you just go grab people on the street or you grab someone that's going to a church, hasn't studied theology, um, they're going to come up with something like that. Holiness has to do with being without sin. Uh, but it turns out that actually Bible scholars do not define holiness that way. Um, it's, a better, it's better for us to realize that the doctrine of holiness leads to purity. But purity in itself is not sufficient for holiness. Otherwise, we start ending up thinking that my moral improvement means I'm becoming holy. And, and in fact, that can be a very selfish endeavor. I'm just working to improve my own character. And that has really very little to do biblically uh, with the doctrine of holiness in the Bible. Um, that being said, would someone like to summarize R.C. Sproul's definition of holiness? He's here on page 36. Um, he defines holy and holiness for us. It'd be helpful for us to know what he's telling us we ought to believe. Anyone at all? It's transcendent. So he says holiness is transcendent. That's the second thing he says. So if you look at this page, um, and we'll come back to that, but the previous paragraph, he says the primary meaning of holy is separate. So he's really using two terms. Mercy, you're correct. He's saying the primary meaning of holy is to be separated. And I think really he's saying separated from. And second, he's saying that it ties up with being transcendent. Um, and I, I think that's actually really important for us to consider. So what do you think about that definition? He's going to qualify it a bit in a helpful way. But before he qualifies, I just want to think about that. What do you think about the definition of holiness as being separate from and transcendent? I liked it because I thought that his point that it tied to the term um, to cut linked really well with the covenantal side of God. So I really liked it. I didn't. Oh, like cutting I didn't cutting. feel like it needed too many qualifiers. I thought it was pretty straightforward. It is actually one of the most common ways to talk about it. Although, uh, as I mentioned previously in our first um, class, I, I prefer a different definition. There are some challenges, some, some drawbacks to God being separate. The, the key thing to see, because the separate in itself isn't bad, but the key thing to see is biblically holiness is not primarily separation from it's separation too. Uh, the, the illustration that I think is useful to keep in your head is to think about objects that would be sanctified, set apart for God's use. 
Now, if you had a vessel in your house and you had a room, you had all your vessels there, your, your various jars and containers, and you took a silver one and you went and put it in your backyard, you have separated it from the rest of um, your vessels. But it didn't become holy. It just became something that's sitting out in your backyard. If you made it holy, what would you have to do with it? Where would it end up if it was holy? In ancient Israel, we're not talking about in the 21st century. In ancient Israel, if you wanted to dedicate a, a vessel so that it would go from being common to being holy, instead of your backyard, where would it end up? The temple. In the temple, which is God's house. Right. So don't think of the temple as a church. The temple is symbolically God's house in the middle of Israel's palace. And so the idea is not simply separated from that you moved it away from your other objects. It's separated to God. And on page 37, RC makes a very helpful qualification on this. Um, in the middle paragraph on this page, the very last sentence, well, let me give you two sentences here. He says, the things that are holy are things that are set apart separated from the rest, they have been separated from the commonplace, consecrated to the Lord for his service. And I just want you to keep in mind that unless you get to consecrated to the Lord, I slightly prefer devoted to the Lord. We'll come to that in a little bit. Um, but devoted to the Lord, belonging to the Lord in a special way for his service, until we get to that place, you don't have holiness. And that actually is going to become important as we look at the rest of the chapter. Thoughts just on that separation part. Does that make sense to you that it's not simply separated from, but separated to? Or is that still a strange idea to you? Well, it kind of goes along with repentance, right? When you when you repent, you're not just turning away from, but you're turning to God. Ray, that's fantastic. Actually, I'm going to preach on repentance this coming Sunday. I'll point at you a lot. No, I'm going to preach at repentance this coming Sunday because that's what the passage starts with. John the Baptist is saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's really a point I want to make. And I'm going to make it over and over again throughout my ministry is repentance is not about going from being bad to being good. It's about going your own way to going God's way. Now, of course, that does involve moral improvement, right? But it really has to be that belonging to God, walking with God, pursuing God, embracing God. How about the transcendence aspect of it? So RC here, in um, back on page 36, the third paragraph on the page, he says, God's holiness is more than just separateness. His holiness is also transcendent. And then he hopefully gives us a definition of transcendence. Um, that word transcendence means literally to climb across. And I think the next part is really helpful. It is defined as exceeding usual limits. That's a good definition of transcendence. Transcendence is not your normal thing. It, it, it's above them in some way, right? It, it exceeds those limits. But then he does an interesting thing. Um, he basically is defining um, holiness as transcendence, right? If you go to the very last paragraph, he says, when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. Is that true? Or let me ask it differently. What's the, what's the challenge with that of defining holiness in terms of being transcendently separate? There's a pretty obvious challenge. 
And by the way, God is transcendent and God is holy, right? So that's true. We're talking about defining holiness. What's the what's the challenge for us of defining holiness in terms of being transcendently separate? I think you have to use uh, the following two sentences where it talks about uh, being other. So not only is he separated in a sense from us, but he's he's other, other than us, other than. Ray, that's exactly what R.C. is saying. And I'm asking you, what's the problem with that biblically? Oh, Rachel. I don't know if I have the right answer here, but the problem I had with reading it was to me, it seems like Christ is the opposite of all those things that Christ became like us and Christ is near to us and God makes himself known to us. And I feel like that doesn't jive with this very well. No, so that's fantastic because of Christ. Christ is like us in some ways. Christ is unlike us in some ways too. We can talk about Christ being other, um, different from us. In particular, of course, we're sinners and he's not. But here's the fundamental problem with this. The Bible says, be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In fact, that phrase is repeated numerous times in the Pentateuch. God says, you be holy, for I am holy. Now, what if that meaning of holy is transcendently separate? God is saying, be ye transcendently separate, because I am transcendently separate. And you realize we got a problem, or as I might say, good luck with that. You're, you're not going to be able to make yourself transcendent. So it's true that God is transcendent. But transcendence is not God's holiness, right? God is both transcendent and he is holy. It's not a good definition of holiness itself. I may seem like I'm harping on this, but it turns out that getting the definitions fuzzy, right? I don't want to say R.C. is wrong here, but getting them fuzzy actually leads to other problems. And I think they show up in various ways in the chapter. Um, I want to come back to that word, um, that he uses to qualify this, consecrated, right? That's what he uses on page 37. And that's a good term. I like consecrated. If you want to use consecrated and join RC in this, that's really helpful. I slightly prefer the word devoted. And here's why. If you talk about God being consecrated to himself, it's very hard for, for us, I think, to conceptualize what that means. Whereas you can make sense of the idea of God being devoted to his own glory. Right. And secondly, we are actually called not simply positionally to be holy, that is saints. We're not called to do that. God does that. We're called to act on that by acting holy, being holy, pursuing holiness. And I once again think it's easier for me anyway to think of I'm going to be devoted to God actively because I've been devoted to God by his sovereign grace. I'm going to be devoted actively. Then when I say I'm going to consecrate myself to God actively. I'm not saying it's wrong. I think it's a perfectly good term. They really mean the same thing in this context. Um, but for me, I just think devoted to God makes it easier to put all these pieces together. Um, I don't want to quibble over words. You want to use consecrated, that's fine. And actually, you don't have to use either of those words. The key thing is to see that holiness is being separated to God as his possession for his purposes. To me, devoted works well for that. Thoughts or questions on those terms or those ideas? 
Ray's going, I like, I like uh, consecrated. That's okay, Ray. We, we love you. I was just going to say, it really helps uh, that definition, definition of being the possession of God really helps because when you look at the list, it's ground that belongs to the Lord. It's like the house that belongs to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think the difference is like the transcendent separateness um, kind of separates, as Rachel was saying you know, God's divinity in our humanity. But um, when, you know, we're holy because he makes us holy because we belong to him. And so it's not just a drawing together of the two things, holy and not holy, but it's more of he's working in us. So I don't know if that, if I'm right on that, but that's that's what I was thinking of. Um, I think you are right on that. I do want to stick with the transcendence things for a moment because he talks about a number of things in the chapter in terms of our experiences and our experiences of the other in this case, that which is transcendent because God is also transcendent. And um, we don't have to nail this down too much tonight because we're going to talk about it next week or two weeks. Next week, we're going to have our in-person Bible studies uh, when we come back about the trauma of holiness, right? So sometimes you read the Bible and you see there's when people encounter God or his holiness shows up in a particular way, it overwhelms them. But maybe someone would like to talk a little bit about how the transcendence of God, his greatness, how he's infinite and so on, impacts you in your life. You know, you go up and you, you think about God speaks the entire universe into existence. He is very different from me in that. I don't know if you had any of those thoughts in the chapter. He, he, he. RC is kind of bouncing these ideas together, but um, how do you encounter the fact that God is so much bigger than us? So that, for example, you ever have, you ever come to an awareness all of a sudden that God knows all your thoughts? Like you think your thoughts are private and then you go, oh, wait a second. God knows everything I've ever thought. Like, how does that impact you? No, I, I will say in the way that R.C. talks about in the chapter about holiness is true about transcendence. That is, it is both terrifying and comforting at the same time, or maybe at different times, but it's a doctrine that's very comforting. You know, you, you look up at the stars at night and you go, my God just spoke all those into existence and I am in his hands. He loves me. Right. On the other hand, just using the illustration I just did, God knows all my thoughts. Um that can be a little scary sometimes to realize that um, I, I am not my own, right? My only hope is that I'm not my own, but sometimes we kind of want to be our own. We have a tension there in, in our, our experiences. Well, I don't see anyone wanting to talk about this, so we'll move on to our next topic. I just threw it out there. Um, we will talk about this in relation to holiness when we come back with the trauma of holiness and encountering a holy God. Um, look at page 38 with me. I, I want to draw your attention. By the way, I should say, uh, you know, R.C. Sproul undoubtedly had the most influence in me of any theologian because I read so many of his books when I was a, a young man. And he's such a gifted speaker. I, I pointed out that he he's uh, wandering a bit in this chapter. 
but I can hear his voice in my head and I'm going, yeah, I'm just happy to listen to him talk. You know, it's, he, he's really just such a gifted uh, teacher for us. Um, I did find this one chat, this one paragraph is, is put it nicely, potentially confusing. Um, you could translate that as it's mistaken. Um, it's the one that begins, when we use the word holy to describe God, we face another problem. Would someone be willing to read that paragraph for us? And then we'll talk about it a bit. Ray, you're on mute, Ray. I can read it. Thank you, Ray. We often describe God by compiling a list of qualities or characteristics. No, 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 on page 38. Yeah. I started after the sentence you already read. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. It's okay. We often describe God by compiling a list of qualities or characteristics that we all that we call attributes. We say that God is a spirit, that he knows everything, that he is loving, just, merciful, gracious, and so on. The tendency is to add the idea of the holy to this long list of attributes as one attribute among many. But when the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify one single attribute. On the contrary, God is called holy in a general sense. The word is used as a synonym for his deity. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that his love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His spirit is holy spirit. Thank you, Ray. So I, I want to give R.C. the benefit of the doubt here, because what he's trying to do is get us all to think holiness is really, really important. So he's kind of exalted in that way. And actually what he says here at the end, his love is a holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His spirit is holy spirit is all true. That said, what he's claiming about holiness not being an attribute of God and also that holiness is really a synonym for deity is wrong biblically, confessionally, and linguistically. Um, and so I almost want you to cross out the paragraph, but don't, don't do that. Um, I, after all, could be the one who's wrong. Uh, here's, the, here's the problem with it. Suppose for a moment that holiness was a synonym for deity. That would mean that when we say, God is holy, we're not saying anything fundamentally different than saying God is God. That is, holiness would then become a meaningless term. It doesn't actually tell us anything. And of course, when you read the Bible, you know that's not true. To say God is holy is a meaningful statement that is communicating something to us about a particular aspect of God's character. And those aspects of God's character, as R.C. points out, we call those aspects attributes, right? So first of all, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense to say that uh, to use holiness as though it simply means deity. Um, second, historically, the Reformed Church, but actually um, really the universal church, with some minor exceptions, when it talks about the attributes of God, talks about holiness as an attribute of God. Um, think about our shorter catechism. Uh, question four of our shorter catechism asks, what is God? It does not give all the attributes of God in the answer here, by the way, but it does list some. What is God? God is a spirit. 
infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And just to check, I ran and looked at a bunch of my systematic theologies under attributes of God, and every single one of them lists holiness as an attribute of God. So I think it's kind of weird in that sense for R.C., who's a great Reformed theologian, so you all know, uh, for him to want to say holiness isn't really an attribute of God. So I, I thought that was kind of strange. Um, he is, of course, correct to point out that God's mercy is a holy mercy, God's love is a holy love, God's knowledge is a holy knowledge, and so on. But that's not because holiness equals God's deity. It's because God is simple, right? God, has a, God is a simple being. We are composite beings. God is a simple being. That's a really loaded theological category. I think I did talk about it in Sunday school four or five years ago. Would someone like to explain what it means to say that God is simple? The simplicity of God. Can I ask a question first? Sure. And then I'll answer. Um, but wouldn't, wouldn't in the way he's saying it, the, the purity definition make sense? Because in the way he's describing this paragraph, to me, it seems like he's saying his justice is like the purest, truest, you know, highest form and without sin. So to me, it seems like the definition we threw away earlier kind of applies to the way he's using it here, though. I, I think you could do that, but I also think you could do it with the more biblically correct definition of holiness in terms of being devoted to God, which is God's justice is full of God being devoted to his own glory, right? His love, it has to do with being devoted to himself as well and so on. So I, I, I'm, I see what you're saying. I'm just not, I'm not saying that that therefore fits in. If, if, if holiness was purity, it would be fine for him to say purity here. But I don't think it's a necessary consequence of him using it this way. Maybe he does mean it that way, but I don't think so. I've read it. I, I said I haven't read this book in like 25 years, but I've heard him talk about holiness at great length, and I'm pretty sure that's not exactly where he's going. So, so what is the definition of simplicity? Or would you like to push back on that one a little bit and say, no, I think it is purity. No, I have no pushback. I'm good. And for okay. the definition of um, simplicity, I guess, I don't know if this is our theological definition, but it can't be broken down into anything further. Yeah, that's exactly right. So God doesn't have parts is one of the common ways to put it. In fact, one of our leading theologians today that works on the doctrine of God is a professor, um, uh, Dozoal, um, teaches at Cairn University, did his PhD at Westminster. And uh, one of the books he wrote on this is simply called God Without Parts, where he's trying to come back and help people recover the doctrine of biblical simplicity. What do we mean by that? Well, I have a hand. Right? My hand is not my arm. My hand is not my eyes. I am made up of parts. I'm also made up of a body and a spirit. Right? I'm, I'm not simply material. And so we're used to thinking of people in terms of being composite. That's even true of my, my various attributes. My attributes are separable from each other, or many of them are anyway. God isn't like that. God is a pure spirit. And so everywhere God is, at all times, God is always everything that he is. So you cannot separate 
in any way holding God, any of God's attributes, right? That we say God is love and God is holy. God is always love and he's always holy. It's who he is. So theologians talk about this, in fact, um, by using that language. God is his attributes. So the reason why we actually talk about attributes is not because of it helps God, it helps us. We're finite, right? So for me to talk about God, I have to be able to focus on characteristics of this one God who is always that everywhere that he is. What that means, of course, is, is in every activity God does, right? And, 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 and well, let me take that back a little bit. In his being, God is always all his attributes. It's not like sometimes God is love and sometimes God is holy, right? That, that's a really important doctrine. And R.C., at least late in his life, loved this doctrine. He wrote a glowing, um, glowing recommendation for um, James Dalzell's, um, another one of his books, All That Is Within God, that deals with this topic, among others. And so it just kind of surprises me that he would want to make holiness the overarching theme that you attach to all these things. But keep in mind, you can't separate God's justice from his love either, Right. Does that make sense to people? I know the doctrine of God's simplicity is not something you just naturally are thinking about all the time. It's actually a really important doctrine. I'm going to say something else about that, but I want to take questions on it. Um, how many of you have heard about the simplicity of God before? Maybe I ought to teach this in Sunday school again. Jason has. You know, Marissa. Okay. Um, my wife, Kristen, came on to raise her hand. My, my poor wife has heard about everything in theology. She gets it in the car. She gets it sometimes in bed. Okay. Um, here's, a, here's another distinction I want to help you with uh, that's important is God's attributes are who he is that's distinct from his activities. God's activities flow from who he is, but they are not who he is. Here, here's, here's how that distinction works. God is holy. God is not wrath. You see the difference? God is holy. God is not wrath. Because God was holy before he ever created the world. Wrath comes into existence when sin comes into the world. Apart from sin, there's no wrath. So a holy God, who God is, because he's devoted to his own glory, is going to judge sin. I'm losing you. That's an important truth, though. So we'll, we'll come back to that at some other time. I don't want to um, overwhelm you here tonight. But God's attributes are, it's important to realize that they are all talking about the one God. You cannot separate them. And therefore, um, I just think this paragraph is potentially quite, um, quite, quite a bit misleading. But we, we cut him some slack. I'm sure many of the things I say are misleading, too. Um, I'm going to risk it. Do you guys see the difference between God's attributes and his activities? Because it actually is tied into this issue about God's holiness as we're going to talk about it. That's why I use that as an illustration. Do you, do you see that God's holiness is an attribute? He always is holy. He was holy before the foundations of the world. But some of his activities, activities he does, like pouring out wrath on sin, um, redeeming people, right? Covering over our sins through the righteousness of his son. Those are not attributes of God. Those are activities of God. I got, I got a couple nods. Okay. We're on the same page here, I hope.
And you would say they flow from his attributes? Yes. Yeah, so like, God's activities always naturally flow from who he is. Mm-hmm. He does what he does because he is what he is. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, because of who God is, he's going to act in certain ways. This is part of why we have sayings in the Bible, like God can't look upon sin without judging it, uh, which is also why it's such an appalling idea when people want to have God forgiving people without him also satisfying his own justice, which he does through the cross. He pays our, he pays our penalty, right? So he, he doesn't compromise his justice in order to exercise love and mercy. That, remember, the, all his attributes always go together because there's only one God. He satisfies his justice in order to show us his love and mercy. And so simplicity, God's important here. You never want to pit, there's never a tension in God. You do not want to pit God's attributes against each other. Uh, by the way, that's very practical. I've sometimes said this in assurance of pardon. Uh, I think a lot of times when people struggle with assurance, they're imagining in their head, God is holy and God is merciful. And I am hoping his mercy is somehow going to win out over his holiness. And there's a number of problems with that because it starts by putting attention in God where there isn't one. But it also creates a practical problem for me because every time I look into my own heart and I read the word of God, I go, I don't know. In my case, his holiness, I mean, how could he not possibly judge me? When I realize God is unified, he's a simple being who has loved me with an everlasting love in his son, that's an activity, he chose to do that, then I can be completely comfortable. I can rest in his goodness because there's no tension in God. There's no tension in me either. So, okay, that was an awful lot. Um, Questions about holiness being an attribute of God or how it relates to his other attributes. As I said, next week we'll come back and we'll talk about um, the trauma of holiness or more of our experience of it. So think about it this coming week, uh, two weeks. Uh, Think about um, how you experience the holiness of God. And we'll go through some biblical passages that I think will be helpful on that, where we see how God's holiness, when God shows up, impacts people in various ways, sometimes to terrify them, sometimes to draw them towards pursuing holiness themselves. I have one more I want to throw in here, and I'm a little hesitant to, but it actually has to do with um, Rudolf Otto's The Idea of the Holy. Has anyone ever read this book, by the way, The Idea of the Holy? It is probably the most famous book written on holiness. Um, It's this big, fat book by a German Lutheran um, theologian philosopher, and um, he did this study. And R.C. not only spends about two pages on it, I think it actually influences the way he talks about the holiness of God. And I just want to throw out a few methodological things because tonight has not been odd enough. Um, When you hear about stuff like this. So as RC points out in the book, what one of the things Otto did, it's actually a big project in his book, is he went around the world and he looked at different cultures and he saw how those cultures experiencing things that are different from the ordinary, right? So really odd sorts of events that they would come into contact with or a sense of something greater than what's going on in this earth. And he studied all these things and he compiled them. And he called that 
their experience of what is holy, right? The idea of holy. How do different cultures see what is holy? Because this book is so famous, by the way, I think it's a perfectly interesting and good thing to do. But because this book is so famous, theologians have often gone to it and said, well, that's kind of what holiness is. But there are a bunch of problems with doing that. Um, the first, of course, is Otto wasn't doing this biblically. He's studying cultures, right? So he's not necessarily giving you a biblical idea of holiness. He's saying, here's a bunch of experiences people have and, and their experience of the holy. But there's a second problem with this. He's not going to cultures and saying, tell me what you call holy and why you call it holy. He's seeing experiences that people have, right? That are of strange things that happen, things that shock them, scare them in various ways. And he is calling that holy, right? So it's, it's a loop. You, you, you can't get from, from there even to talking about how those cultures thought of the holiness. Now he had to call it something, um, but it's really potentially misleading. Let me give you a concrete illustration of this. If a person came into contact with Satan, according to Otto's approach here, they would be encountering the holy. Because right? his definition of holy is this experience of something that's way outside the normal, terrifies you, or so on. And let's just say, um, if your definition of holiness includes Satan, it's not a very biblical definition of holiness. right? Does that make sense? It, it, just, it just doesn't work. So actually, this is a practical thing you can apply to other, other um, bits of theology. Uh, don't just take something for granted because some work became famous. Um, in this case, it's a very famous work that probably did a really useful thing in terms of studying all these cultures, but it doesn't actually help us understand the biblical doctrine of holiness or the holiness of God at all. I should stop there because I know most of you aren't interested in a dead German philosopher, um, but I was interested about the methodology here. Um, oh, I did have one, one last thing I wanted to connect with that. This fuzzy definition of holiness having to do with being separate and other actually lends itself to grappling onto these things. But if you had the definition of separated unto God or devoted unto God, you would right away go, well, Otto's not talking about biblical holiness, right? So it's actually one of the reasons why I want you to have a clearer definition than this, this holiness just means being separated and other because um, that could lead into all kinds of weird paths. That makes sense? Okay, I know this is kind of a weird way to talk about this chapter, but I am your pastor who also wanders even more than RC does. Um, thoughts or questions about the chapter? There's other things in here, but I didn't, I didn't bring up that might have been interesting to you or helpful to you. Um, something that you said about the transcendence and separateness mm -hmm. kind of made me think about like the charismatic movement. And um, just like when you think of your think of it completely separate, like you're trying to have this experience, um, then you're not your devotion might not be true. That's right. You know? Of course, of course, in some sense, it can't be wholly other, or you couldn't experience it. Uh, but 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 I get what you're saying. I, I I would also throw in there it allows people to pursue an experience of the transcendent that doesn't actually impact the way they live, 
right? Because I had all these neat, special emotional experiences. By the way, I am not opposed to emotional experiences. That's not the point. But I had these emotional experiences. And then I go on living in ways that dishonor God according to his plainly revealed word. Um, that's actually a really dangerous thing. And you're you're right, Marissa, not that it always shows up in the charismatic movement, but it does show up in the charismatic movement. And, and in fact, it's um, we see some of this in Corinth, but you can get it in the charismatic movement with, uh, because I had these special experiences, I somehow am holy. Yeah, and that's actually not how the Bible deals with holiness. Holiness is not your experiences of other things. Um, Satan of all, um, this is from the chapter. R.C., um, not wrongly, he talks about only God can consecrate us and make us holy and so on. It's God's touch. You should remember, it's not just God's touch. God touches Satan. He does. He crushes him under his feet, right? So the, the, the encounter of the holy doesn't make us holy automatically. It's God graciously turning us to him, setting us apart as belonging to him, we are positionally holy, and then turning us to him in terms of our hearts so that we pursue devotion to God, and therefore we get sanctified. Yeah. Uh, other thoughts? Going once, going twice. We'll talk about this more next week. A lot of these things blend over and it'll be easier because we're going to go through, I keep saying next week, two weeks. Um, we'll be going through some specific biblical passages and we'll be able to exegete those passages. He didn't really use passages in this chapter um, and I didn't want to just throw them in there. Anything else? Let me turn off the camera and we'll talk a little bit and we'll pray.